Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on Sunday, March 29th, 2020. We are still hunkered down, keeping our social distances. Right, except from each other. Uh, right? We were pretty right. close here. Huddled right. around the microphone. But we've been getting outside. Yeah. Outside in the fresh air. Right, in Pennsylvania. There are wide open spaces, wonderful trails. Uh, and and uh, that really helps to revive us, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, it? absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I feel poorly for people who don't have that opportunity. Yeah, because you, you need the change of scene. Yeah. You need the exercise. And, uh, and because we are working off the quarantine 15. Have you heard about this? No. Quarantine 15, you know, like the freshman 15? Oh, no, I don't think we're gaining any weight. That's definitely not. Well, we could be. No, but we're, we're eating not. awfully well. Yeah, but it also gives you a sense of normalcy. I mean, when you walk around outside and it's just you and the Delaware River, it's, uh, it doesn't look too alarming out there. Right. It's something we're used to seeing. So, uh, but at the same time, when we're inside, you know, we don't have the opportunity that we've had in the past to go to plays, uh, especially in New York. Or movies. Uh, or movies locally. Uh, so we're, you know, looking at that television set and seeing what we can get in terms of bringing up movies and the like. And we've had some success with that. So we thought we'd talk about what we've been watching, at least. Uh, for the past week, because, you know, every night you got to think about what you're going to watch. And I think there are three things that we thought were worth mentioning. And the first uh, was Emma. So, you know, Emma. lest anyone think that uh, people here don't put their money in their, their hand in their pocket once in a while to pay big bucks, we actually uh, forked over the $20 to see a first-run movie, because Emma would still be in the movies otherwise. And uh, that gave us a chance to see Emma, which was in broad release uh, before all the movie theaters were closed. And it was a movie we intended to see. Uh, and so Emma... Of course, is the Jane Austen book. Jane Austen's version of Clueless. <laughs> yeah. Jane right? o- you might want to clarify that. As I understand that. that. Yes, yes. Clueless being a take on Emma uh, sometimes. Do people remember Clueless? By now, that's not yeah, a movie. Yeah, if you say it to the kids, they all know okay. what uh, Clueless yes. is. That was a take on Emma. And uh, so that's how I explained it. And, and there's another version of Emma that was done with Gwyneth Paltrow. There many versions, like a billion versions. There are a billion versions of Emma. Uh, so what do you think of this one? I thought it was fine. I thought it was cute. I, I thought it was better than cute. I thought it was quite good. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it had a real... Uh, it looked great. It looked it great. Uh, it was very meticulously shot. It was wonderfully colorful. Uh, I thought the woman who played Emma, the young woman, Anna Taylor-Joy, was... Delicious. Uh, charismatic is yes. the word I would use. You can yes. use delicious if you like. Okay. Uh, and just to give you some names, Johnny Flynn, who apparently is sort of a you know rock singer that was drafted to do this movie, uh, was quite good as her counterpart. Uh, it's directed by Autumn DeWilde. It has Bill Nye in it, who's always kind of amusing. It has Miranda Hart, who's the very tall woman from Come the Midwife. So there are some familiar faces. But it, uh, I liked it quite a bit. I mean, I haven't seen William as I haven't read any Jane Austen. And, you know, it's not Wittgenstein, right? Uh, it's it's uh, it's domestic. Well, I mean, in a it's sense, a, it it's good. a great story about uh, a young woman, you know, who kind of like we all do when we're young, think we know everything. Yeah, and uh, you know, it just shows her, you know, coming to grips with well, that uh, was the thing. reality, and I liked that, that there extent. was an yeah. arc to the character. Yes, it wasn't like you just had someone that's the way she is, and 
Now here's someone isn't else. This that's cute, the way isn't she this cute? Isn't this funny? And then she gets married. No, it's uh, there's a yeah. In a subtle way, she comes to grip with thing, and, and the a story development turns of on that. her character, right? And that actually what makes the movie resonate. Um, that and great costumes. Is it? Oh, well, oh, well, yes. She had great hats. Her dresses. I did notice her hats. Yeah, and her dresses are fabulous. Yeah. Bill Nye's outfits are fabulous. Well, Bill Nye's. Um, I remember so, his pajamas were pretty outstanding. Yeah, so uh, it's uh, oh, great I, fun visually. So I would recommend it. I think it's worth the twenty dollars. Uh, figure for two people, you're amortizing it. It's just like a movie ticket. But right? I have a feeling if people wait two weeks, it'll be. Oh yeah, I, I, look, look, you're probably right. It probably just cost a few dollars, but that's not the point. The point is, I think Emma's worth seeing. We certainly enjoyed seeing it. So that was the uh, number one uh, that we saw. Then we saw last night. A movie that was uh, released in 2007 called The Darjeeling, the Darjeeling Limited. Uh, sorry. And, uh, <laughs> and that is a Wes Anderson movie. Uh, Boy, was it ever. Yeah, a Wes Anderson movie. So it's It it's may odd. have had an arc. It's off track. I, didn't, off I couldn't find it. Right. It's, uh, so this stars Owen Wilson, uh, Adrian Brody, and Jason Schwartzman as uh, three brothers, and they're all kind of uh, idiosyncratic uh, performers. Owen Wilson, probably most closely identified in that group with Wes Anderson, was partially written by Jason Schwartzman, and we've seen in other things. And you were commenting today about what an interesting face Adrian Brody has. Oh, yeah. 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 And they were an odd trio in terms of brothers. Uh, And it's on a journey that ultimately culminates in their meeting up with their, uh, their mother, uh, played Angelica by Angelica Houston. Houston, who, according to some people's analysis of the movie, that that is what ties the movie together. I think it's a little short of that, honestly. I mean, it it is uh, not what you would call a uh, straight line conventional narrative, uh, right? And uh, I mean, I looked up, uh, I picked up a Roger Ebert review of the movie, which he did in 2007 when Roger Ebert was still with us, and what he said, and I think this kind of resonates. He says, "quote The movie meanders so persuasively." It gets us meandering right along, uh, and maybe that's a little bit of positive. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's a I, meandering film, and it's a pleasant place to be. I think you just uh, let go yeah. of your, you know, demands in terms of plot development and enjoy. Right. And you were saying also that you enjoyed the, um, you know, the culture, you know, immersing yourself into uh, another world, right. both Wes Anderson's world. And the world of India. That's right. And the colors, and that's the a foods, good, that's a good, et cetera. Good way to put it. And, and and that also sort of dovetails with what's going on with the characters. And again, it's not a conventional narrative, but you have these three brothers who have sort of unusual, maybe you might call it a troubled relationship and troubled relationships with others and their mother. Uh, and what makes the movie, uh, what animates the movie, is throwing them into this foreign culture, which is completely different. Yeah. That forces them, as well as us, to just think about things just a little bit differently. Right. And it puts things in an entirely different context, and it makes the movie, I think, worth watching. It's worth watching. And it's also um, very accessible in the sense that it's not heavy-handed no. uh, well, in terms of introducing you to another culture. It's light. Right. Uh, it's quirky. And uh, you're into that. You're into their lives before you even know it. But you, you have to suspend your expectations with respect to conventional narrative because you're not going to quite get that. Right. Right. And uh, did you? Did I interrupt you? Were you about to say something? No. Else? But I was wondering. Do you do you happen to know when that movie was made? Oh sure, uh, two thousand seven. 
Oh, okay. So uh, Wes Anderson is released. Okay, I, I, I almost thought it was older than that, but uh, yeah, no. Okay, it's, so it's that's a, a some time ago. Thirteen, years old. 13 okay. years old. And uh, Raspberry Bird thought it was Wes Anderson's best movie to that time, and I think he's mm. made movies since then. So there's an arc for Wes Anderson. And the third movie is, uh, to my mind, uh, the standout. Uh, the movie called Breaking Away, which was made in 1979 which is about uh, four youths in Indiana, in Bloomington, Indiana, near the campus of Indiana University, and their coming of age, if you will, uh, which, of course, doesn't do the movie justice. Uh, and it does sort of revolve around the main character's infatuation with Italian cycling and culminates in a momentous bicycle race, which is the, the, what's called the Little 500, which is a race that's run every year uh, on a track in Indianapolis, uh, and um, it's a it's a great movie. I mean, uh, well, what do you think of it? Well, of course, it came about because you've been seeing all these lists. You know, there are lists everywhere about what to watch yeah. since we're all hunkered down and watching stuff on right. the smaller screen. And uh, you were looking at, uh, I guess, lists of great sports movies, right? And uh, I guess mostly it wasn't there. Right. And you were thinking, why aren't people listening Breaking Away? Well, uh, it is a great movie. And it's about cycling to some extent. Only to some extent. But it's also about growing up. It's about family relationships. Uh, the um, the main character's relationship with his dad, the portrayal of the dad, right. are just fantastic. Right. Um, and uh, the look of the movie is so 70s. Uh, it's uh, but 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 it doesn't take away from the movie in any way. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. If anything, it just kind of uh, enhances it. Uh, and uh, it's uh, really, you know, it really was enjoyable in yeah. many ways. I mean, it does have you know uh, some. Uh, it has some great race scenes. Well, you know, you know, it's, you know what's funny about that because you said to me, there's one scene and he has some training scenes, and there's one in particular where he's following some truck, and. Uh, you know, and you say to yourself, gee, that's almost scary. And when we were watching it with, with Granger and Nico, they, during some other scene, they said, oh, he's going to have an accident. And it was pointed out, and, and, and I'll get to the, the Ebert review in just a second. One thing he points out is that the director, Peter Yates, the directed action movie, he directed Bullet with Steve McQueen. And he says he is using his experience in action movies and he's trying to get you to be worried about the character. Mm -hmm. And But it's not that kind of movie. It's, it's a better movie than mm -hmm. that. Yeah. It's not about an accident happening. Um, so, uh, and I'm, well, just to continue with, with Ebert, um, consistent with what you were saying, this is what Ebert said about the movie in 1979. He said, breaking away, uh, well, he said two things. First of all, your point about the family dynamic, he made the point, he said, you know something? Here's a family that gets along. You never see that in a movie. You never see it in a film. They're not always entirely happy with each no, other. No, but they don't but hate they each other. they get along. They get along with their kids. Yeah. He said, Breaking Away is a wonderfully sunny, funny, goofy, intelligent movie that makes you feel about as good as any movie in a long time. It is, in fact, a treasure. Yeah. And I was saying to a friend of mine, I said, you know, uh, talk about movies about youth in Indiana. This is a movie that's better than Hoosiers. And of mm -hmm. course, he hadn't seen it. He said, that seems impossible. Well... It's possible. Well, and the, I, I should. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say we should mention who's in it. Uh, I should say it's written by Steve Teich, and he got. I only mentioned that because it got the Academy Award for Best Screenplay. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and it stars Dennis Christopher as the main character. Uh, all these these young people had careers: uh, Daniel Stern, Jackie Earl Haley, and of course Dennis Quaid. And the father's Paul Dooley, and the mother's uh, Barbara Barry. Um, yeah, so they, they were just great together. And I should mention that this is a great family movie. Yeah. Not for little kids. Well, I was going to ask you, what's the cutoff? That, what's the cutoff? Well, you know, I would say because it's about high school students, yeah. you know, I would aim for high school and up. I'd say it's 14. Not, 14? It, yeah. It's not because there's not, um, there's not any um, thing you don't want little kids to see. They just won't get it. Right. It just won't resonate. Yeah, I think 14. But for, um, for anybody who's ever had a kid yeah. or, or was a high school kid going into college, it, it's uh, it's a great thing to watch. So I, I too recommend it. Yeah. I, yeah, I do think it is a great family movie. Uh, but, a, but I think it's a great movie. Um, so in any event, so that's our uh, recommendations and evaluations in terms of things we've seen on the screen. I mean, we haven't been able to get to the theater. There was a journal article uh, this week about all the things that are being affected in a profound way. Not surprisingly, one of the things they point out are theaters. Uh, they write, as you might expect, about prominent theaters such as the Metropolitan Opera. Uh, Metropolitan Opera is losing a zillion dollars. The Metropolitan Opera has laid off everybody all the people laid off are not complaining. Uh, oddly, they're saying we understand the situation is an extreme one. Uh, and the journal uh, observes, as they must, that this is also like a ton of bricks upon all the smaller theaters. Um, and it is. And I, the theater I'm associated with Classic Stage has to deal with it, too. But but you had an article uh, that sort of looked at theaters a little bit differently. Yeah. Well, we are reeling from all, all these businesses that... Right are being so uh, um, heavily affected by um, the necessities of uh, the you know dealing with the virus. Uh, but um, there was an article in the arts section by Michael Kimmelman of the New York Times last week uh, giving us kind of a theater tour. So there all there's all this virtual stuff going on, right? right? Um, so you can, uh, you know, watch virtual shows on TV. You can uh, take virtual tours through museums. And this is the Times trying to give you uh, somewhat of a tour of the theaters of Broadway, uh, which are now all closed down, uh, with uh, an award-winning architect and designer David Rockwell and uh, he designed a lot of stuff that we're familiar with right. do, you, do you realize that yeah no I read the article uh, I I what I kept I had to read it twice because there's the idea that he's designing productions and he's an architect so he's sort of working on renovations of theaters there are two different kinds of things right he does Set designs, yeah. he does theater design, he does restaurant design. Yeah, they almost he, make it sound like it gotten, goes together. I don't, I don't he's know gotten that. a Tony for She Loves Me. Really? Which we saw that production, Which I remember right? they called it a jewel box. Yeah, design. and uh, I mean, that was an important part of that uh, yes. production. Uh, but he designed Tootsie, Harvey, Hairspray, Zillions. Right. Okay. Um, and, but he's also gotten a Peter Beard Award. Right, I saw that. I didn't understand that. Or James Beard. James Beard. James Beard. Sorry. Restaurant. James award. Beard yeah. uh, Award for, you know, um, you know recognition design. for restaurant design. I, I don't know what you it's You know, for. like uh, a, a big tribute. Yeah. So he um, he's quite knowledgeable. The fun thing about him is 
his background, okay? Yeah. How did he get interested in theater design? Probably stems from his mother, who was a performer. And when he was a little kid, uh, his father passed away, and uh, they were in Chicago. They moved to Deal, New Jersey. Oh, now, yeah, you know Deal. Yeah. Because we ride through it on one of our It's um, sort of an affluent uh, Jewish community. By the shore. Right. There's the beach yeah. and these enormous you know, beach houses, right. so to speak. They're really palaces uh, and not much else. Apparently, his mom founded a community theater right. when they lived there. And uh, he's a little bit younger than we are, I think. And uh, that's how he got, you know, kind of into the theater uh, world a little bit. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, it never rubs off. He also talks about going to his first uh, Broadway show, um, when they were living in Deal, I guess, uh, going to Fiddler on the Roof and going to a restaurant, going to Shraps, yeah. and just the whole festivity of the activity, going out to right. eat, the people, the laughter, the chink- clinking mm. of the, the glassware, right. you yeah. know, and then well, the what he- amazing sort of group experience of being in the audience of right. uh, he, a he, show. He says he felt he was part of something. He, yeah. even, and even in Shrafts, he felt he was part of something. Right. The, the, the whole thing, the yeah. whole going out yeah. and going to the theater, etc. Um, so he sounds like a fun guy to take the tour. I won't try to describe uh, everything um, he says about these uh, various uh, theaters. They resonate with him you know, to some extent on a design level. Right. And what is the architect trying to do? Uh, and, you know, he's kind of looking and noticing right. little details about the original facades or the original interiors that resonate with him. So that was kind of a fun article. Um, is there anything else? Uh, no, I, I think you, you, you got it. I mean, it's almost hard without pictures. And uh, even his his observations didn't match up with the pictures in the Times entirely. So no, uh, you couldn't really get it. And, uh, and he was talking about the interiors quite a bit. Even yes, he did. He also he mentioned the Belasco. Now you've heard the Belasco. You've heard of the Belasco. Did you realize it uh, opened in 1907 and was it was designed for David Belasco, who put a ten-bedroom yeah, yeah. duplex apartment in the top uh, on the top. Right. Uh, so it's, it's a nice little insider's view, and he does kind of make that point that. Uh, all these places go through a lot of change. Nothing's permanent, uh, as we're learning now, right. <laughs> for real. And uh, all the you know all these aspects of the theater, the people, the performers, the designers—they're all intertwined. So that was a, a fun little uh, virtual tour. And then uh, I um, I want to talk a little bit a little bit of of art. Okay, so. I have to admit that uh, during this sequestering, I have been working like a dog uh, because just translating all my face-to-face classes into online classes and trying to make them engaging and interesting, even though computer isn't my finest medium, uh, (laughs) has been consuming me. So it's fun to see some articles that uh, relate in terms of art. And there's a very fun article in the Weekend Arts by Jason Farrago in the New York Times entitled Saint Epidemic. And it's about a painting by Anthony Van Dyke, Flemish painter um, from the 17th century. And uh, it's in 
the Met exhibition celebrating their 150th anniversary, okay? Which, it's an exhibition that nobody's getting to see because, of right. course, the Met is closed. But uh, Farrago got to see it. And uh, this painting, uh, which is St. Rosalie interceding for the plague-stricken Palermo of Palermo, uh, was painted in uh, 1624 by a 25-year-old Anthony Van Dyke. It was one of the first acquisitions of the Met. Right, and you said um, that that was in the 19th century, late 1800s. Yeah, it was like 1870. Yeah, yeah. so um, it's uh, notable for that. Yeah. Of course, when they acquired it, uh, they thought it was... Uh, it was... Uh, uh, it mis- mistakenly entitled something like Virgin, the Assumption of the Virgin, uh, which refers to the Virgin Mary being uh, lifted up into heaven uh, because it's a, a depiction of a beautiful woman floating about in the sky, surrounded by pooty, uh, little baby angel mm-hmm. types, um, you know, heading up into the sky. I mean, if you look at it closely, you say, hey, you know, really doesn't look like the Virgin Mary and doesn't have any of her attributes. Well, St. Rosalie, uh, I should say, was uh, um, actually, uh, well, here's the story. Uh, it's a little bit of a complicated story. Let me try to uh, cut it down. Anthony um, Van Dyke. Van Dyke was in... Sicily to do a painting of uh, the island's Spanish viceroy. Okay, now he finishes the painting. This is 1624, but he can't get out of town because the plague has struck and uh, they're in quarantine. The port is shut down. So meanwhile, um, as this whole plague thing is going on and uh, to put it in perspective on May 7th 1624 Palermo reports the first cases of a plague that will soon kill more than 10,000 some 10% of the city's population Um, and uh, you know they have the whole deal they're going through what we're going through state of emergency etc so he um there was a discovery of some bones uh, um, on the island, which are declared to be those of uh, the Saint uh, Rosalie, and uh, people prayed to them. And uh, you know, it's uh, you know, um, kind of when those bones are discovered. It, long story short, the people feel that uh, Saint Rosalie helped. Uh, you know, help protect them. Help protect them. So he's, so he's slow so, down that play. So that's what he's going to paint. He's gonna... So he's been asked to, uh, you know, paint, uh, do this painting, yeah. and he does. He has to invent the iconography, that is, the attributes. Mm-hmm. Uh, he puts some roses in it because Saint Rosalie, get it. Um, but other than that, he's kind of uh, figuring out uh, it out on his own. Um, so you know, that's uh, wow. Um, Van Dyke, good on you for uh, making the most of your quarantine. Yeah, right. uh, better than we're doing. Um, are you getting tired of hearing me? Uh, do you no, want to hear about? 
No, Holbein. I, I, I have actually, no, I don't want to hear about Holbein yet. Okay, all right. Uh, we have a couple of obituaries. Uh, actually, we have a bunch of obituaries. I'm going to do them two at a time, but we're going to race through them because we're, we got a lot to cover here. Uh, but the most prominent figure, at least one that we actually have some connection to, with Terrence McNally passed away. Um, and uh, Terrence McNally uh, won uh, four Tonys. Um, and the four Tonys, interestingly, are uh, two of them were for you know straight plays, non-musicals, Love, Valor, Compassion, and Masterclass, uh, in which the uh, it's about Maria Callas, uh, the opera singer, but it's a regular play. And also he wrote books for musicals. He wrote the, he got a Tony for Kiss of the Spider Woman and for Ragtime, uh, and he was prolific. I mean, he wrote three dozen plays. Uh, he wrote the book books for ten musicals. He wrote the librettos for four operas. He wrote screenplays for film. Uh, and we got a chance to uh, see him in what I'll call conversation at, I guess that was 54 Below. Yes. Uh, in a fundraiser for Classic Stage in which with, John Doyle had a conversation right. with him. And that him. was a great conversation. Yeah, he was, you know, look, I'm not going to add to. He was charming and delightful. Yeah, that's exactly right. He was an incredibly engaging guy. He had an interesting life story. Came from Corpus Christi, Texas. I mean, they, they, he's really born in Florida. But well, the best story was. Coming as a freshman to Columbia. Yeah, Columbia University. Columbia University. And he immediately runs down to try to see My Fair Lady. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's just a, a young guy. Yeah. And the box office uh, people just stare at him and say, this is sold out for months, yeah. kid. Uh, and uh, he goes on to see... He goes on to see um, Damn Yankees. And with Gwen Vernon, which is pretty good, damn fun good. Show. Yeah, but anyway, it, but, it was fun he, to hear him reminisce. But also, he's talking about uh, growing up as a young gay man in Corpus Christi, where they weren't having it. And uh, he goes to New York, and his whole life opens up. And uh, uh, he was a wonderfully engaging guy, and he had just a tremendous range. I don't know if he ever wrote the great play, but he had a tremendous range. And I, you know, he wrote the Ritz, which which I happened to see with Sadie uh, years ago. And it was just an hysterically funny play. At the same time, he wrote a lot of very serious stuff, um, very much different. So in any event, so he will be uh, missed. The other person I'll mention here at this point is that Richard Reeves, who we all remember perhaps a little more vaguely. He was a columnist. He was a political commentator. But he would, at a time that people like that would get on the Johnny Carson show, the Tonight Show, believe it or not, and talk about politics and the books he wrote. And he had a lot of interesting views. I won't go into all of them here. Uh, he was a Democrat, but he actually uh, was pretty even-handed in the way he looked at presidents. Uh, and he had uh, harsh things to say about everybody, honestly. Uh, you know, he had, believe it or not, he liked Obama. And he also liked Ronald Reagan, uh, which is a tough combination, you might think. Interesting, his views on Nixon and Kennedy. He said he voted for Nixon. Uh, but he came to believe that, in fact, uh, Nixon, because he didn't trust anyone, uh, brought out the worst in people, and Kennedy was just the opposite, That because he was more optimistic, he brought out uh, the best in people. But it, he also wrote a book uh, really castigating the government officials involved in the Japanese internment, which we talked about last week in connection with Nakashima, uh, and uh, named names, including uh, Earl Warren, who became the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. So, um, very interesting guy, uh, Richard Reeves, uh, passing away. Uh, yes, you were going to tell us about beans, I think. Then. Suddenly. Yes, yeah, suddenly. The lowly bean is right. a coveted pantry item. Right. 
Um, so this is funny. Uh, this really resonates with me because uh, more than two weeks ago, uh, when I was in my last uh, um, group exercise class, I was in a Pilates class, right. and I walked in, and people were going crazy, and they're saying, oh, they're starting to close schools down, uh, this, that, and the other thing. Uh, and one of the ladies said, uh, you know what? The stores are sold out of black beans, cans of black beans. Right. You would think they'd normally give those away. And I, I just thought that was hilarious. Yeah. And uh, it turns out this is the bean moment. Now, we've been seeing a bunch of recipes for beans, especially in the New York Times. And Mark Bittman has been writing articles proudly proclaiming that beans are uh, a much better source of protein than the meat and even the fish that we right. eat, okay? Um, but here there was an article in the business section right. saying the bean business is kind of exploding. And there was the story of uh, a um, a man in the bean business, a guy who runs a trade, trade group, goes into a grocery store and sees empty bean shelves and uh, he's amazed this has not happened we've been through all kinds of disasters never are the shelves the shelves are often empty of milk and toilet paper but not of beans and really it's hard to find a bean uh, around here and uh, <laughs> you know it's a wonderful story in the business section the you know the you know the bean people um are, you know, uh, sad that it's taking, uh, you know, uh, a terrible event like this to kind of beef up their business, but they are really enjoying it. One um, group uh, kind of started a bean club, like there's a wine club, and uh, you... Uh, you know, every three months get a different wine de mm -hmm. de delivered. So they started a bean club. It's kind of a joke that you get different beans uh, every uh, few months. Yeah. They now have an 8,000-person waiting list really? to be on Bean of the Month Club. Uh, so uh, it's uh, Sounds like kind a of yeah. amazing. And I have seen a lot of great bean recipes I'm anxious to make. I mean, uh, you know... Uh, I've been uh, a lover of beans, but uh, they've been trying, you know, some people seem to be having these beans on their shelves with no intention of eating them. Yeah, that makes uh, it feel good. Yeah. There's um, a sense of control. Yeah, and they interview one 18-year-old who says, I don't think I've ever had them. <laughs> <laughs> Hard pass. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that that young lady is well, not is the recipe looking recipe a, a bean recipe or not? No, it's not. Um, there was an... In the New York Times magazine, which yeah. I assume the recipes in there have been put together, you know, eons ago. Right. But here's an it's it's another funny sort of personal story because uh, uh, yesterday you and I were in the giant yeah. food store and I was just we're getting some things that we needed. Yeah. Okay, but I was just noticing the shelves and I noticed there was no flour at all. Right. Okay, no white flour, no whole wheat flour, no flour yeah. except buckwheat flour mm -hmm. and i was really tempted to buy some buckwheat flour because my mother used to make these great buckwheat pancakes and uh, i was thinking about that and but i was reluctant to just randomly stock up on things that i didn't really have a plan for and we don't really need that many more carbs in our life at the moment 
So I opened the New York Times, and of course, Gabrielle Hamilton has a recipe for buckwheat crepes. Well, Dang. I think we can. Dang. Put, I think the buckwheat you flour know? is still there. Uh, possibly, yes. Uh, anyway, um, uh, she has a recipe for a galette. You know, galette, you had galettes when yeah, we were sure. uh, in uh, Brittany and Normandy. It's a. Cheese. Yeah, usually a savory filling right. to a heartier uh, crepe, you know, which buckwheat would qualify as hearty. And so she has kind of a delicious um, crepe with eggs, gruyere, and a little bit of cheese. Not, not, not a little bit of ham okay. is what I meant to say. Uh, so that's uh, that would be tasty. Buckwheat galettes by Gabrielle Hamilton in the New York Times. That'd be fun to do. You know, it's uh, we're spending a little more time cooking, so you can fuss around right. with interesting, right. doable. Okay, so there's a couple more quick obituaries. I don't want to. These are just interesting stories. I mean, this Boris Stankovich lived to be 94, so it's not as if you know he was his life was cut short in early stage. But what's interesting about Boris Stankovich, who happened to be from uh, what was once known as Yugoslavia, and he was a sports official, is that in telling the story of Boris Stankovich's life, we learn that uh, our understanding, certainly my understanding with respect to how we have come to have professional basketball players in the Olympics, which was a huge change when it happened, and it was marked by the so-called dream team, including Michael Jordan, we always assumed that that was because the NBA said, this is silly, the U.S. should never lose the basketball gold medal. We have guys here who are 10 times better than any other country, and in fact, they were, and, and they still are. But why is it that the, you know we figured that this was... The pros were strong-armed into the Olympics by the NBA and by the U.S. And the answer is they weren't. The answer is that Boris Stankovich led a European movement to include professional players in the Olympics. And the reason was because uh, the European players were, going, were striving to participate in the NBA themselves as the game became more international and the league became more international. And these countries wanted to make sure that notwithstanding that they would participate in the NBA, they could come back home and play on their Olympic teams. They did not have deep rosters. Uh So the European countries uh, needed to have the Olympics uh, allow uh, professional basketball players. So um, that's exactly what happened. Uh, You saw for that reason... The dream team, and you saw bolstered, uh, more highly skilled European teams, and raised the level of everybody across the board. Although, of course, most for the Americans. So I thought that was interesting, and put sort of uh, a theory that I think everybody had to rest. Um, and Richard Merrick uh, passed away. Richard Merrick was an editor, uh, uh, but what's interesting about Richard Merrick, who edited uh, uh, Baldwin, uh, James Baldwin, Robert Ludlum, uh, Ernest Hemingway, Thomas Harris, who wrote The Silence of the Lambs, uh, is the obituary starts with a story about one of his first jobs in the 60s when he worked for Scribner's. He was entrusted with a manuscript of A Movable Feast, which is the Ernest Hemingway book. And uh, it, it was a draft with a lot of notes handwritten by Hemingway, uh, the only copy of that. Uh, he was taking it home and he was going to deliver it somewhere else the next day. And he took the subway home and he got home and he realized he didn't have the manuscript anymore. And uh, he had just left it on the subway. Oh, my God. And he spent the whole night in tears. He said, my career is over or worse. And he goes the next morning to the subway, lost and found, and someone had turned it in. Oh, my God. <laughs> what a lucky guy. So 
for that reason, he had a career, and uh, he had a great career in publishing. Um, and what's funny, too, is that he married uh, a woman named uh, Dabna Hine in 1991. His first wife had passed away. And uh, interestingly, he didn't write many of his own books, but he did write uh, a novel with Miss Hine in 2019 that explored the question, according to the Times, whether great transcendent love affairs can still occur in the age of online dating. And he and Miss Hine concluded uh, that they can. So uh, there's being that kind of love affair. So in any event, uh, that was Richard Merrick. All right, now can I talk about Holbein? Holbein. We've been waiting for Holbein. We're waiting okay. an awfully long time. All right, so fun to see a um, page in the Wall Street Journal with a big dip, uh, image of Hans Holbein's The Younger's Ambassadors, uh, which is a painting that uh, I'm talking about in my you know online lecture this week to my classes, painted in 1533, and uh, it was Holbein's uh, kind of entree into the uh, English um, portrait market. Uh, Holbein was Swiss, yeah. uh, but uh, largely because of the Reformation, uh, you know, that uh, religious imagery was outlawed by many Protestant uh, sex. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you know, it, it was a tough time for artists. And uh, he ends up over in England um, with the idea that there may be uh, more opportunity there for a painter. He paints this magnificent double portrait of two young French envoys uh, from basically um, the French king on behalf of the Pope. It's a long story. Uh, but anyway, that's, that's the painting we're looking at. And here. it's luscious. Yeah. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, beautiful depiction of the men, all these uh, kind of different uh, um, objects, instruments, uh, oriental rugs, uh, brocade tapestry, tile floors, uh, etc. It's really a showpiece meant to say, look what I can do. And it works. He becomes a key painter for Henry VIII and ends up painting all the people, many of the people, I should say, that we read about in Wolf Hall, okay, by Hilary Mantle. And uh, this is an article in the Wall Street Journal that actually says, yeah, Hilary Mantle was qu quite uh, inspired by Holbein's paintings, and she would look at his depictions of the characters, including uh, Thomas Cromwell, and uh, read into, kind of look at them for um, insights into their personality, their character, etc. She loves Holbein. In fact, she had a um, print of the ambassadors in her own home. She and her husband, who was a geologist, and they, they lived all over, Botswana, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia, dragged this picture everywhere with them. It's kind of a, you know, sort of a touchstone in their lives. And uh, so that was interesting to see how this painting has so much inspired her work of thousands of pages. Uh, so I'll probably have to factor that. Well, I, but idea. I also think we also agree that Hillary Mantle has the all-time PR agent because there have been so many stories 
about her third volume in the trilogy about Thomas Cromwell from so many angles and now about the painting angle. It's just unbelievable. Yes, and I think she also has an excellent um, makeup artist and uh, photographer. <laughs> well, it's, there's a fabulous picture of her here, and she's actually older than we are. So, yeah, well, uh, I mean, maybe it's an old picture. I don't know. But she, I don't know. She looks terrific. Maybe, maybe she works out. All right, last two obituaries, and I'm done with obituaries. Eric Weisberg, uh, a banjo player, is famous uh, because... Uh, he played the banjo in the actual audio recording of Dueling Banjos. So what is Dueling Banjos? In, in Deliverance, the movie, there is a scene which everyone who's seen the movie remembers well, and even people who haven't seen the movie or may be aware of where is this child who is uh, or an adolescent who looks like he's somewhat uh, short of uh, something, and, and he's supposed to represent something in the way of an inbred child. Um seems to be incapable of speech, but at a certain point he just picks up the banjo and starts parroting what uh, someone in the group that's visiting to go on their little canoe trip is doing on his guitar. Can I just say yeah. that Deliverance, Deliverance was a scary movie? Yeah, oh yeah. And I was on a canoe trip <laughs> in the summer yeah. when it came out. Yeah. Okay, so anyway, and, and it's a theme we all well, know. Well, let's just to right. go back to the music for the moment. Yeah. I mean, you had that kind of uh, banjo picking uh, in Bonnie and Clyde. And, well, yes, I'm not talking about that right now. I'm talking about in Bonnie and Clyde and Beverly Hillbillies. That was done by Flat and Scruggs. But Dueling Banjos, as you were about to just started to sing it, was the theme in uh, in Deliverance, and it was much more popular than anything else. It was number two on the pop chart. It was a huge selling thing. Yeah. This guy played the banjo. What's interesting about this guy, Eric Weisberg, is uh, he's born in Brooklyn. And you say to yourself, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, the guy has such an amazing career. He ends up playing the banjo guitar on, I'll just mention, with Judy Collins, John Denver, uh, Billy Joel, Bob Dylan, Art Garfunkel, Tom Paxson, just about everybody. It's the most amazing career. Say, how did this happen? And what's funny about the obit is that it turns out that he grew up in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Uh, he attended a progressive school where he began taking violin lessons, but he spent summers at Camp Woodland in Phoenicia, New York, near Woodstock, which was run by the father and uncle of uh, a young girl at that time named Toshi Aline Ota, who was the future wife of Pete Seeger. So he got to meet Pete Seeger, who gave him banjo lessons when he was eight and nine. And then... <laughs> So, uh, long, strange trip. And uh, Eli Miller passed away, the so-called Sultan of Seltzer, who kept, according to the Times, Brooklyn bubbling. He had his own Seltzer delivery. You hear about these guys once in a while right. who carry these these cartons of Seltzer, wooden crates, if you will, filled with Seltzer, heavy with on their shoulders. Bottles, right. Yeah. Yeah. And he carries them up 10, 12 flights of stairs. Uh, this is one of those guys. And... Miller, when he was interviewed earlier in some articles written about him in the Times of 2013, he explains the appeal of seltzer in a lot of ways. One of it is, and this I didn't know, when you go to the supermarket and you buy seltzer or soda water or whatever, it has um, five pounds of pressure okay, mm -hmm. in those plastic bottles. When you get seltzer, it's 60 to 80 pounds per square inch of pressure. It's much highly, more highly pressurized, and that's why it's a different product and it's a different experience. Now, he's selling the seltzer. But the yeah. seltzer is different. And, of course, it's also the romanticism of it is that these guys who did these deliveries with this, you know, walking upstairs, six, eight flights, whatever it is, 
until they were old age. This guy passed away at 86, stopped delivering only in 2017. So he was 83, 84 when he stopped <laughs> delivering. He said he was wearing them down to 70 pound, 70 pound cases of seltzer. Although he did say uh, the truth is, you know, his dream was to when he dies, he wants to die while he's doing a delivery. Uh, well, it turns out uh, this is how his father died. His father uh, was in the same business named Meyer Miller. And he retired uh, at a certain point, but would still help his son out. But in 1976, he was doing a delivery, and he died of a heart attack. That's the way seltzer guys go, apparently. Uh, but Eli Miller uh, died in bed, I suppose, at the age of 86, two years after he retired. All right, so... You had an article on sleep. Yeah, I do. Go ahead. As a matter of fact, I have to say that it's a, it's a little bit tricky getting a good night's sleep. When we're just stuck, yes, uh, at home because we're less active, we're less active, okay. and their mind right. is wandering. So, with that in mind, the Wall Street Journal did a whole, you know, issue, like a whole section yes. on sleep, right? Okay, with all kinds of articles, and I'm just going to mention a few of them. One is titled "Is Sleeping Naked a Glorious Return to Nature." And there's, it's a discussion pro and con sleeping naked. And, of course, their expert uh, that they refer to in sleeping naked is Noah Grosshandler. <laughs> a 24-year-old technology product That's not his real manager. name. You think that's yes. his real name? Yes. Yeah. Um, why else would you include the advice of a 24-year-old yeah. uh, about whether one should sleep naked? Yeah. And uh, so um, it's not actually a very helpful article. No, no, none of the articles it, are It just very says helpful, you're warmer if you, uh, you know, wear pajamas and uh, there's the possibility that uh, it's not quite as clean to sleep in the nude yeah. you know, for obvious reasons. Right. Uh, so there's that, but we have the advice of Noah Grosshandler. Uh, if you're interested, go to the Wall Street Journal for that. Then there was a fun article about um, whether you know about wearing nightshirts, and uh, that kind of resonates because we've been watching Schitt's Creek, right? Uh, where Eugene Levy's character Where's wears a nightshirt, night right. and everybody gives him a lot of grief. Right. Uh, but he, but he claims keeps wearing it. It's the newest, latest, greatest thing. Right. And of course, nightshirts go way back. And apparently, nightshirts are a lot uh, warmer to wear than anything else. They regulate your body heat better, and were much more popular before we had all this central heating. Um, and so that uh, they also hearken back to a time when very much in the West, modern world, we had this idea that uh, men wear pants, women wear dresses, okay? That's, that's kind of a new um, and arbitrary limitation, I mean, throughout history. Well, because the nightshirt is like a dress. Uh, yeah, but I mean, you know, men have worn skirts and dresses throughout right. history, right. And, you know, all kinds of tunics, and still do in many other parts of the world. Yeah. Um, but uh, so, you know, nightshirts kind of went out of fashion, um, but uh, this article kind of, you know, does recommend highly uh, the functionality of them. 
um, and uh, recommends them and also points out that the top of a nightshirt is really quite presentable in the world of telecommuting. Okay, nobody can tell. Yeah, um, that it's a nightshirt. That I think it's, it's a shirt. Yeah, it, look, it has a collar. It looks like any normal shirt. And, and once again, you don't need to wear pants. That's okay. Great. And uh, yeah, we're all excited. That, yeah. that is the, the greatest part. Well, no, the Noah, greatest thing about remote um I'm just going to say uh, Noah, telecommuting. Gross Handler, Noah Gross Handler would take that route. There's no <laughs> question about it. Um, let's see. And so the... Wall Street Journal also has a great article about, you know, how food, how what you eat can yeah. enhance or in some cases hinder your sleep. And it starts out with the this uh, remark, a good night's sleep is the new kale, Chef David Boulet said recently. Everybody wants it and it's good for your health. Okay, and he actually um, has a, a series at, at his restaurant uh, of uh, kind of meals that are sleep enhancing mm. and, uh, in, you know, incorporate various uh, ingredients that will help you sleep. Now, we know certain things are not helpful to sleeping, and that would be coffee right? Yeah, caffeine caffeine right. of any kind. And uh, actually also wine, okay? Alcohol um, really can interrupt your, uh, what does it interrupt? Your deep sleep or something yeah, yeah, like that. Something interrupts your REM sleep, something interrupts your other deep sleep. Right. The caffeine yeah, yeah. does one kind of sleep and uh, right. the, the alcohol yeah, I, does I, another. I said, and so uh, the yeah. doctor here he says, uh, you know, I'm not suggesting that everybody become a day drinker, but, uh, you know, why not have your wine at lunch instead of dinner? Yeah. It will metabolize by bedtime if you indulge midday because your, your body is busy metabolizing the alcohol for quite a while after you drink it. And that kind of wakes yeah, you but that's back a big, up. That's a big behavior change. You know, there's no coffee after the morning, no, no wine after lunch. That's a big change. I mean, people don't live that way. Right? But here, let me tell you what you should eat if you want a good night's sleep. Okay. Okay. And each of these foods has a different yeah. reason, but I'm not going to go through all of them. Okay. So fish, such as salmon, mackerel, anchovies, sardines, and herring. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You don't need any encouragement to eat uh, no, all those no, no. things. It, it, you know, sardines. Sardines will cure everything. I'm just convinced. All right. Um, kiwi. Tart cherries, oatmeal, walnuts. We know about turkey, right? The tryptophan. Uh, everybody's right. always dozing off after Thanksgiving dinner. But miso, okay? Bananas, chicken eggs, almonds, milk, uh, coconut oil, all right? And oysters, clams, walnuts, leafy greens, mushrooms. All right, so you can eat your way to a great sleep. And uh, finally, the one thing that gets Go ahead. in the way of sleep, caffeine, well, I know you're saying that we're running out of time. No, I'm not saying we're running out of time. I think we said it already. I mean, Michael Pollan says that uh, you get your, you can have a cup of coffee in the morning. But Well, he's got a whole audio book. Yeah. So if you want to hear an audio book about uh, the effects of caffeine on your life. You know, I heard, of, you know, you were listening to him on NPR the other day. I'm not... Uh... It's a lot of it's a lot to say about caffeine. Let me put it to you that way. Right. It's uh yes, a lot of detail. Well, he's kind of a downer, 
Well, I don't know if he's a downer think... or not. He just he's got a lot, you know, he's he's into it. He's into it deeply. But uh, I do think it requires real change in the way people live. If you're going to say you can only have caffeine in the morning. He, he says caffeine well, and green tea. And he kind of green tea in the middle of the day and then nothing afterwards. Right? So. Right. That's tough. And then you can have chamomile. Yeah. Or something like that. Okay. You know, lots of things yeah. worth doing are hard all to right, do. All right. All right. All right. Okay. But, uh, that's a big change. I'm, I'm, I'm not advocating it. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoy my coffee. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, all right, so we... You should just know yes. what it's doing to you. Okay. All right. Yeah, well, he's, he's made a study of it. There's no question about it. Um, last thing. Uh, striking article about uh, murder mystery weekend at, guess where, the Mohonk Mountain House. That's right. Mohonk Mountain House, which we talked about before, which is a wonderful setting, uh, natural, wonderful natural setting. And we've gone there for jazz weekends. So they do theme weekends. And uh, just recently they had a Mohonk Mountain House Mystery Weekend written about by Alexis Solosky. Um, and uh, her mother had signed up for it and persuaded Alexis to go with her. And apparently what it is, and we've seen this and they advertise it, but I never really thought too terribly much about it. Uh, they have uh, a group called Murder Cafe from New York who has performers that come and they put on the basically the outlines of a situation, if you will, or a show uh, which culminates in, in, and it's in a funny way, sort of a sketchy way. Uh, and one of the cast members gets so-called uh, murdered. And the question... Yeah, 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 it's just like Mr. Murder Mystery Dinner Theater. Exactly. But it's a weekend yes. instead of just a night. Right. And you know how this started. I thought that was a, an interesting thing. It started with Stephen King. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, and buddies. Yeah. Um, to, uh, you know, a bunch of, uh, it's a bunch of famous guys. Um, right. And uh, they do the first one, you know, kind of on a well, lark years ago. We've actually seen Stephen well, King, Stephen King Edward, at the Mohonk right. Mountain House um, because th- that was part of the inspiration for the way he set, what's that movie called? The, the Shining. The Shining. But it was a Stephen King, Edward Gorey, and Donald Westlake. Yeah, can you imagine? Yeah, yeah. Uh, going to a weekend uh, with them well, running an event? But it also used to be more serious. So It, it was more serious. Now it's kind of camp because... Uh, that's exactly right. It's camp. Yeah. That's the right word. And But this, Alexis Solowski says she's having a wonderful time. Uh, they were hysterically funny. They set up the situation. And then what they did was they broke the audience, the participants, if you will, into teams. Uh, and teams of four, six, or eight people, if you will. Uh, and uh, she says her teammates included teachers, lawyers, and oncologists, and a man who wasn't his, was his wife told me in textiles, whatever that means. And then each of the teams would get together and put forward their own solution in their own performance after they spent some time together. And uh, depending on the accuracy of their solution and the quality of their performance, here's what really got me. There would be a winner chosen, and the winner got a free weekend at Mohonk, which is no small thing. Well, it would have to be, Daniel. This sounds horrific to me. Oh, it's just, fantastic. You know, it's fantastic. It's like, uh, You're fighting it. Sounds We're like going one of those team-building things no. where you get put in a group, and then you have to come up well, with a the article, and you have the diva in the group, uh, right, you have right. the oh. naysayer. You're drawing me you know, in, Tamsin. I really go to Mohawk in. to get away from it no, all. No, I can't no, no. even imagine. She, she says the guy in textile killed in the skit. He was fantastic. Uh, her mother delivered the epilogue. Uh, they thought they did great, but they didn't win. Somebody else won. 
uh, which was fine. And uh, that uh, later the Mohawk texted them the footage, a flurry of Facebook friend requests followed. And that afternoon, my mother descended to the reception desk and signed herself up for next year. So we could do this next year. You we could, could do We it. could meet Alexis Solosky and her mother. You we could We could even be it. on their team and uh, win a free weekend at Mohawk. You find yourself a partner and go. You're welcome to it. Look, as she says, and if you go back to art, and we're talking about these arts organizations who are really struggling now, uh, is this. How little theater needs, Solosky says, a stage willing humans as art and supportable as a minimally competent communal effort, tremendous. Next year, honey. On that note. <laughs> On that note, this is Tamsin Dan. Read the paper. This is Dan Abuoff, and you're probably still Tamsin Granger. And we'll see you, see next, you next week. week.